I'm Naomi Klein, and you are listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. To you, the nine-to-fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all-night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Labor Radio. Of the working class, by the working class, for the working class. I'm Laura Wadlin, here with my co-host, Jamie Partridge. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Laura. Our guests tonight are Sin Huang and Keith Brower-Brown, who, as we speak, are on strike against the University of California. Sin is a tutor at UC Berkeley and a department steward in UAW 2865. Keith is a researcher at UC Berkeley and a department steward and international convention delegate in UAW 2865. Welcome, Sin and Keith. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. We are recording this interview on Thursday, December 22nd. The strike of UC academic workers has lasted over a month, and all four bargaining teams have reached tentative agreements with ratification voting finishing up tomorrow. But whether there's a yes or no vote, whether the strike is over or continues, the labor movement and especially university workers can draw many lessons from this fight. Beginning November 16th, 48,000 postdoctoral and academic researchers, academic student researchers, and graduate teaching assistants at the 10 University of California campuses went on strike. This job action is the largest of any in the United States in 2022 and the largest ever of academic workers. The University of California is the largest employer in the state a state with the largest economy in the country. The product these workers turn out is not only an educated workforce from around the world, but scientific research that is turned into profitable products by private industry. The strike has created a crisis as finals and grading are interrupted, as well as research projects put on hold. Sin and Keith, take us through the key demands how they would transform university work, and how the tentative agreements measure up. Sin, go ahead. Um, yeah, so we spent months serving members and holding town halls about um, to, to gauge workers' core demands, and through that process, it seemed that um, you know a livable wage and um, 
specifically uh, wage increases indexed to the cost of living um, at the abolition of this xenophobic fee called NRST, non-residential supplemental tuition, which is mainly a fee that international student workers have to pay, um, and stronger anti-bullying and harassment protections were uh, um, and as well as um, better child care and access needs provisions, I think were, were some of the top demands of workers. But um, our, our bargaining positions um, have, have evolved very quickly, often without um, the input of, of, of rank and file members. And so um, while we started the strike with, um, you know, a, a lot of unity around those demands that I mentioned and a galvanized huge, you know, new layers of workers at the university, I think four days into bargaining, um, we kind of did an about face and um, got rid of the language around uh, COLA, the indexing our wage increases uh, to the local rent markets um, to signal to the university a, a, a serious willingness to bargain. And this really came as a shock to a lot of workers. I And it was um, really contentious on the bargaining team as well. I think the split was like t 10 to nine or nine to eight or something like that. And so um, obviously there there wasn't a lot of um, consensus around this decision and, it, and more shock it didn't really come back to, to workers um, for deliberation or, or vote or anything like that. Um, and since that day, I think we've done other similar moves too to like, you know, signal good faith in bargaining to, to the university. But um, given the offers they've sent back to us, I, I don't think that strategy has, has worked too well. Um, Keith, do you want to add on anything? No, I think that's a great start. Yeah, I think that the uh, I did some surveying as I did walkthroughs to organize for the strike in between that and just seeing discourse around the state and town halls it really seemed like living wages to end rent burden to keep up with the cost of living out here that was the the really unifying demand and our demand was fifty four thousand uh per year for workers uh teaching for nine months or doing research for the full year uh and then ending the huge fine on international workers, $15,000 a year while you're working in a fine to the university just because you're international. Third, full childcare coverage of about $9,000 a semester. And there were important demands around access needs and ending or at least setting up an independent grievance process for bullying and harassment from supervisors. So those are, uh, I would say the top demands that have been really unifying in the strike. Can you talk a little bit about how the tentative agreements measure up to those demands? Yeah, um, I don't have all the specifics on the top of my mind, but um, in terms of like the yearly pay, I think it was around like 38 for a 12 month appointment. Is that right, Keith? Um, it makes absolutely no movement on NRST. It, it codifies existing practice. So it would seem that, you know, international student workers would have to continue paying this fee. And um, um, I got them if you want. Yeah. you want to go ahead So on childcare, uh, like I said, we were asking for about 9000 a semester. Instead, we went up from our current uh, 1300 1400 or so, just about $400 from there. So a little bit short of what uh, parents needed. Um, and then on access needs, uh, most disabled worker activists uh, that have been outspoken and organizing around this in committee have said that what we've got really falls short and just still leaves it up to the university to define who's disabled or not, um, and puts people at the mercy of their bosses as a result. And then finally on uh, bullying and harassment, um, I think there's pretty wide agreement. We won some substantial improvements in our agreements process on bullying and harassment. And actually that's been a bit of a point of 
debate around the TA because there are workers who feel like I really want those protections now. Um, so I want to take this contract or that, you know, that's what they're saying. Um, we, you know, in, instead of waiting another month or two for a long haul strike, that would win more. But of course, I think Sin and I and many people feel, well, we have other protections against bullying and harassment called collective action, whether or not it's in our contract. And um, we shouldn't say our only way to have each other's back is just to get in the contract. And it might be worth waiting another month or two for some things we need to get something that to get a lot of things that many of us also need. Yes. And I think another point that I should add is like um, what makes this uh, TA somewhat difficult to interpret is that in, it institutionalizes experience based steps. So salary increases based on like the amount you've worked and uh, specifically when, you know, when particular provisions in the contract would take effect, I think has been a point of disagreement and contention about what's like, you know, sufficient to people because like there are, you know, significant wage increases and whatnot. But if, you know, they were to take place or go into full effect in 2024, is that enough for people that will that keep up with inflation and all these other factors? So that's also been a, a point of disagreement. Uh, Sin, earlier you mentioned uh, some town halls. Tell us more about the organizing that led up to this militant and unified job action. And how involved are rank and file workers in the planning and direction of the strike? Yeah, so this is a complex question. We have a large and complex union and our, our, you know, you'll hear all sides saying that the strike has been years in the making and that's definitely true without <laughs> delving into like the entire history of our local. I think some notable points are that like in the mid 2010s, the current leadership or the majority uh, of them took power in our union. And these are people who are really to take a very, you know, organizing first approach. And to that extent, they should totally be applauded. They're very serious organizers. You know, they do their one-on-ones and want to inspire, you know, broad militant work action. But I think we'd also be remiss to, to fail to mention like, you know, experiences and struggles like the, the 2020 Wildcat strike where they consolidated um, so much wisdom throughout that process. I think a lot of, uh, especially in terms of like the no camp and this contract ratification um, debacle, I think a lot of the leadership is coming from people on their campus because, you know, the, the, the leaders on that campus really proved themselves in that struggle in, uh, in 2020. They know the talking points, they've seen these situations before, and so they've been really um, um, great people to confide in and read the situation really well. Which, and it, which campus was that again? You uh, see Santa Cruz. And right now, from what I can see, they're, they are the best organized campus. They have um, surveyed 32 or out of 33, something like that, departments on their campus. Um, they know like a super majority of all those uh, departments are uh, are still on strike and still committed to striking. And they've done the systematic kind of organizing necessary to like gauge where people are and also recommit people if we were to vote down this um, this TA and and decide to keep striking. And so um, I think those two different positions shouldn't be juxtaposed to each other, despite what we might hear. Um, and so I I think, I guess like the broad point I should make is that there, there are a lot of different forces within union that have been, you know, you know, planning for the strike and, and um, it might be hard to pull out those different strands if you're just following on Twitter or, you know, watching, you know, news coverage. I'll just add to that a little bit more, if it's okay about the sort of official uh, union leadership led campaign for strike prep and uh, organizing during the strike, which I think is an important context. So um, like Sen mentioned, there's this real commitment to like the mechanics of like efficient, broad organizing um, of reaching like a huge number of members and getting them mobilized into action. And what that looks like in the lead up to the strike was a major organizing campaign around the strike authorization vote itself, 
where we developed a really broad network of strike captains who who each had about 10 people in their turf um, with strong department uh, organizing committees in many departments. Uh, This was across different campuses, but it was definitely strong at Berkeley in terms of participation in this official structure. And we all had access to a list that had every worker in the unit uh, at our campus, which was pretty cool. That was the first time I'd seen that kind of open access provided. And then we called through. uh, There were phone banks, of course. There were in-person walkthroughs, walking through labs and departments. And the goal was to get people to vote yes on the strike authorization vote. Um, I think many of us were a bit concerned at the time that there wasn't enough conversation happening around uh, what actually stopping work and staying stopped on work for the long haul might look like, because it's complicated in academia. In academic work, your personal work, so-called for your PhD or your postdoc, is often has this sort of wide, fuzzy gray area between that and your paid work for the boss. And figuring out how to navigate that is really tricky. And there were great conversations around that that happened in many, many departments and labs. Um, But there was a a line from the majority of the leadership that uh, many of us thought was kind of maximalist, which was just all work must stop everything, like stop writing your dissertation, stop any uh, work on experiments, even if it's, you know, 95% your work, um, even if it damages things long term. of course, like I think all of us, especially you know the more militant and dissident wing of the union, really wants as much strike power as possible. But we knew that to get the kind of broad work stoppage that we needed to hit the UC management, we needed to bring over people who were you know wavering on whether they were going to stop work at all if they were just going to show up at the picket line, say hi, and then go into their lab. So we needed to find a way to where people could stop you know an overwhelming amount of their work hurt the boss, um, but still feel like they were safe from having their visa revoked for not doing their personal work or getting failed for their academic credit for the semester. Um, and so that was a one of the more heated debates in the lead up to the strike. Then during the strike, the focus of organizing was really heavily on picket line turnout, on getting as many bodies as possible on picket lines, which were soft picket lines, essentially sort of rallies at the entrances to campus. Uh, and then there were, um, you know, major rallies and eventually escalations towards more sort of direct actions against the regents and chancellors. Uh, but the alternative sort of vision that Sin was describing from Santa Cruz and much of the uh, current no voting wing of the union was we should be more focused on work stoppage. This is how we're actually hitting the UC. It's not just through publicity or big rallies or even civil disobedience it's we gotta our our main weapon is withholding our labor and we've got to organize 90 percent of this union to withhold 90 percent of the labor if we're going to get what we need from the uc if you've just tuned in this is kboo labor radio portland oregon you're listening to sin wong and keith brower brown of university of california academics on strike Now is the perfect time to contribute to KBU's end-of-the-year membership drive because a generous group of donors will match your gift one-to-one up to $10,000. We are community-supported, non-corporate, and you can go to kboo.fm, click on the donate button. So you're talking um, about serious power here and wielding it. Uh, A month-long strike 
which is what you've got so far, is unusual in an education setting. And uh, then you have this settlement, the vote by bargaining teams to settle, it was close. And the minority is, you know, the bargaining team is advocating for a, a no vote and a continuation of the strike. And of course, there's all kinds of complications about how to make that happen. This minority uh, continuation, that is, minority of the marketing team says the strike is strong and growing power, more powerful. A caucus called the UC Rank and File United is agitating for a no vote. So lay out the arguments on the yes side and on the no side, particularly around this question of power and continuation and confidence and unity of ratifying the tentative agreement. Um, yeah, I could start us off. So I think on the yes side, like the, the major talking points are one, this is a life changing substantive offer for most workers. And that's absolutely true. In my opinion, I think this represents significant progress from the, the pre-strike position of the UC. Um, I think where I disagree with that is like, I don't necessarily think that that truth is sufficient to vote yes on a contract on i think a lot of what uh what a lot of no people are saying is that we should ratify based on whether it meets our needs which it certainly doesn't especially for you know our most vulnerable workers and two um if we think we don't have the power to win more and i think that's exactly what's up for for you know um contestation um i i'm of the opinion that like we should we should carefully examine what happened between like when we got the uc sent us their quote-unquote last offer on december 2nd or 3rd and the the um supposal they sent us which is now this ta it was a span of like a week and a half or two weeks and um despite you know it, the that's the december 2nd or 3rd thing being their last offer we saw significant progress and what explains that and to me it's not because you know a mediator had a lot of skill or had you know our interest in you know their 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 heart or whatever it's because we recommitted to the strike and there's still you know tens of thousand workers not showing up to work and and um i think that's really important to remember because i think the talking points that are floating around right now and compared to december 2nd and 3rd are are, are pretty similar um and um we didn't account for why we saw this movement at all um and then another another talking point that i think the yes side um, is putting forth is that there's like no strategy to strike for the long haul merely saying we should you know stay out for longer is not a strategy and you know to to the extent that people are saying that that's certainly true but i don't think that's necessarily a, 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 the best faith representation of our side i mean one thing to say is that like the no vote side has it's not like super centrally coordinated but there is a significant really serious leadership coming from a lot of different pockets who are systematically thinking through how to recommit our workers uh, co-workers to the strike and so for example santa cruz especially has put out these amazing resources about you know how to power map your departments how to have conversations about like you know the long-term nature of the strike and they correctly identified that you know academic workers unfortunately don't aren't structurally positioned to do time limited strikes like you would see in like auto factories or or even like in in hospitals or something like that it was always going to take the university a long time to wake up to the fact that you know we we make the university run and so i think um you know to to the leadership's point because there has been a lot of hesitance around like doing formal polling and stuff like that on fear of like recency uh, not recency a uh, sampling bias we don't really have the numbers to like hold up to them right now and prove to them that the no vote block is like a significant you know um militant and and, and mass like you know um uh, constituency in the union but that doesn't mean we should just like you know twiddle our thumbs and like let this uh situation you know perpetuate we should go out there and uh, you know pull our co-workers ourselves and prove to them that you know there there are people who feel this way and want to keep holding out for long 
a lot of our evidence right now about the work stoppage is anecdotal. It's been very uh, convenient, I think, for leadership to say that, like, you know, a lot of these core STEM departments are supposedly back at work and you should gauge your decision on how to vote on, like, the performance of those departments and whatnot. And um, and one more thing is that, like, this, this contract is, like, a, a 2.5 year, I think, has a 2.5 year longevity or something like that. And so they're saying, like, you know, while these gains aren't, like, you know, perfect, it, they're sufficient to tide us over and we can build on them very soon is another talking point that, that we're hearing. Um, I'm not personally super persuaded by it, but I'll, I'll let it keep going. <laughs> there are real wage gains in this TA. They're gains from what we have. You're going in this TA from something like 24K a year baseline salary for nine months teaching to uh, about 34 in two years or so. Uh, you know, that's a real step. Um, it won't necessarily outpace the cost of living everywhere in California, who knows. Um, but it, you know, it's still a much bigger gain percentage-wise than many unions have been winning recently. And, you know, it's fair to say that's a that's a reflection of the strength of our strike. You know, that's I'm really proud of us for going on strike uh for five weeks. I don't think many of us expected that we would uh hold out that long. And it's you know, because of that, that we've won that game. But I, I don't feel like it's a sufficient t TA uh, because it leaves behind two of the absolutely key demands we started the strike with on childcare and international workers ending the huge fine that they have to pay while they work. And so, I you know, those folks, many parents and international workers have been backbones of the strike because they have a lot at stake. And they, you know, felt like, wow, my whole union is going out to fight for me. I'm going to fight really hard. There's been a network of Chinese international workers, of Latin American uh, international student workers. These networks have been really important in the strike uh, across departments, across campuses. And now a lot of them are feeling betrayed. You know, they're feeling like left behind. So that that's not okay to me. You know, that's divisive to our union. Another thing that's really divisive in this TA is the wage gains are tiered. Um, in a modest way, where there's a $2,500 or $2,500 gap between Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Francisco as the elite tier that is now being created at 36.5K versus other campuses. San Francisco, UC San Francisco will actually get uh, something like a 45K plus salary for researchers in this contract that no other uh, school will get. And as we've learned from the UAW, from Teamsters, two-tier wage systems or 12-tier wage systems like we got in the UAW now in auto, these devastate solidarity. They devastate union power because then workers in the low tiers don't have a reason to stay in the job, let alone fight in their union and build a stronger union and organize. Uh, and it shows mistrust. And you know, I don't know if a 2.5K gap is going to devastate us right away but it's a really bad principle to put for the first time ever in our contract and it's made a lot of people upset uh labor historian nelson lichtenstein as soon as he got wind of that was speaking out saying this is a really bad idea and members should not let this fly uh, i appreciate him doing that he's at uc santa barbara and a historian of the uaw what happens after a no vote is an important question but to me it's a huge own goal for the leadership of a union to say, well, look, this dissident camp has no plan for a long haul strike. It's like, well, that's that's the job of us as a whole union and the leadership to create a space to make that goal. If members have no plan for a strike that continues after a democratic vote to continue it, 
And that's on the leadership to help make that happen. Um, so I really, I really hope we learn some lessons from this about Eden democracy, that it's not cool to just sort of treat like one ultra left wing or whatever of the union as just dismissible as like an endemic pest in academic worker unions that there are all these kooky humanity students or whatever. It's not just kooky humanity students. There's tons of STEM workers, international workers who are organizing their butts off right now to keep our strike going and win a contract that sticks by each other, like we set out to do. Uh, and there are a lot of serious plans, like Sen mentioned, coming out of Santa Cruz and elsewhere for how we organize a sustained work stoppage. I think the plus side is that if we vote down this contract, then at least at Berkeley, the biggest campus, um, to my knowledge, we're going to have uh, a few weeks before the next, or almost a month before the spring semester starts, like after MLK Day. So that gives us time to prep that. You know, we have time to come up with a plan. I hope we do it democratically. Um, so fingers crossed for uh, members to prove that we want to stay out on strike tomorrow with a no vote majority, and then we can plan it out together how to win this strike. Those who want to continue the strike, and it's clear you both are on that side, um, argue that UC academics have an obligation to university workers everywhere to fight on, and that the outcome of this battle will impact workers far beyond California and the future of the labor movement. What do you two think about that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, the UC is one of the largest employers and the largest economies in the world. The scale of our struggle alone has consequences for millions across the state, not just students and workers at the university, but you know residents around UC campuses and like hundreds of thousands of academic workers who, you know, are, um, are want to learn from our struggle. And similarly, they're associated institutions who want to study the UC's union busting playbook. Um, just to give you an anecdote, I have a friend at Caltech. Um, who just saw the largest raise in their institution's history. Uh, he went from like 38K to like 45K and uh, like overnight. And it's obviously no coincidence is because in their backyard, you know, you see workers on strike. And I think another thing that's been really remarkable is just like the cross organizing and conversations between um, you see workers and other workers at higher ed institutions. Um, if I mean, if you're on Twitter and um, uh, like me, you'll probably see a lot of like tweeting about the Columbia strike. I mean, I, I don't think it's like a template necessarily, but I'm really inspired by that struggle. And this is where we've developed our, a lot of talk, a lot of talking points and, and, and I get to see an example of a quote unquote long haul strike. So that's been really um, influential to us is to be able to hold up a, like a struggle like that as an example for, for maybe what we want to accomplish. Um, and also like, you know, I, I don't think it's it's really hard to overstate like the, the solidarity, especially coming from like Columbia workers. They've hosted, you know, it, it's it's a contentious subject because a lot of some people think, oh, they're like intervening in our democratic processes and stuff like that. But usually, I, I find them to just be really helpful in talking about their own struggles. Like they they were put in very similar situations. They voted no on a couple different contracts, uh, went to uh, um, mediation, and I think I don't know if impasse was part of their um, situation. But they were just able to clarify for us like what actually happened here um what got us through these things and and so that that's been pretty in, invaluable and so yeah i think the 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 consequences reach far beyond um the uc and i think it is our duty to keep this going and and you know set the standard for for workers who want to learn from our struggle and and you know to push back against the uc i'm right there with you sam yeah i i think there are many uh, workers on the picket line who i've been talking to this week who are already thinking about how to share lessons from this strike in particular, what we learned around disrupting 
the UC beyond just our work stoppage. So we, in the first week of the strike, I helped organize a picket line of a huge construction site of like a over $100 million construction site on campus that we got shut down for a week just because the union construction workers didn't want to cross their lines. Um, love that. Uh, then we hit some legal threats and we moved on to picketing trash pickup across campus, making a stinky problem to disrupt the university. Uh, these are all early morning shifts. You know, we had tons of grad workers and postdocs getting up at 3.30 a.m. to get out there and guard dumpsters. And then um, we hit some legal threats with that too. And we decided to, instead of just fight legally, we moved on to picketing uh, deliveries. Um, UPS Teamsters honored our picket line from day one for the most part, um, but there were many non-union deliveries, especially of gas to laboratories. So gas delivery pickets have been a very exciting and unifying tactic, uh, especially for science lab workers, because they know what's needed in their labs. So we're blocking argon, nitrogen, slowing down experiments. Um, and so we want to you know, help share some of these lessons and maybe even beyond higher ed that could have some impact for other you know, white collar workers who, uh, or, you know, biotech, there are all sorts of industries where we, we hope that might help. Um, I, even beyond that, I think there might be some repercussions of this strike for uh, the rest of the UAW in important ways. Um, Sin and I, along with many others in the local have been active and organizing for UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy, the Reform Caucus in the UAW uh, that just won uh, five seats on the International Executive Board in our first uh, one member, one vote elections ever. Uh, we're really proud and thrilled about that. And there's a runoff coming up in January, February, uh, where all members will get to vote for president and potentially elect a reformer president, as well as a regional director out in Pennsylvania um, to be a reformer. And then we'll have a majority. So in any case, the the base for that kind of reform movement has just been exploded in size by the experience of the strike because thousands of workers have just witnessed for themselves what the influence of UAW international staff in a strike looks like. And many of them have some critical thoughts about that and would love to see uh, some more support for democracy and militancy from the top as well as what we're building from the bottom. So we're really excited to build that and encourage any of your listeners uh, to chip in some some bucks for UAWD's Memories United campaign if they can. Great. How can they do that? Well, uh, look up, uh, or no, uawmembers.org. It's that simple, uawmembers.org. And there's a link to donate. If you're, so long as you're not an employer uh, or have a significant hiring, firing capacity, if you're not a boss, you can donate. So yeah, I would really appreciate the support for building a, a fighting militant democratic uaw that can kick butt across the industrial workplace great so we're out of 